the engines roar to life as a repurposed ICBM launches a man into space. But who is doing it? Well, listen to find out. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Clio History. My name is Matt. And I'm RC. And this is episode three of our Space Shuttle series, Do They Have the Right Stuff? We're going to start today with a bit of background and a bit of an overview. We're going to cover close to 10 years in this episode, so we'll try and make sure no one gets lost along the way. Uh, We will get in-depth in some areas and uh, be a bit vague in others. Uh, This is just because of time constraints. Uh, But Stalin was able to acquire the secrets of nuclear technology through the extensive espionage network the Soviet Union had across the West. The modern American can only remember the better dead-than-red models in the McCarthy era. You just have to look a little over a decade earlier from that, though, and it looked like the average to the average American, capitalism failed them. With socialism on the rise across the world, plenty of intellectual Americans were sympathetic to the Soviet Union. FDR was able to save American capitalism by regulation and establishing a slight safety net for the average American, but communist sympathizers still existed, however, and through those sympathetic scientists and espionage groups born out of the mind of a paranoid despot like Stalin, the Soviets had connections to get the information they needed. In 1949, just two years after Jaeger broke the sound barrier, the Soviets tested their first nuclear weapon in the steppes of Kazakhstan. The Cold War was on. Stalin would soon die in 1953, leaving a power vacuum to emerge. After some Soviet politics played out, Nikita Khrushchev emerged as the new leader of the Soviet Union and aimed to de-Stalinify the country. Khrushchev looked to defeat the West by being better in every way. This is the reason for the kitchen debate. Where uh, it's your favorite thing. It is my favorite thing. <laughs> where Khrushchev and then Vice President Richard Nixon went at it intellectually in a model home for the American working man. Korolev, now freed from any suspicion of being an enemy of the state after his service during the war and his service during the life of Stalin before he died, was able to begin fulfilling his dream of a space program. Korolev eventually was able to manipulate Khrushchev, with Khrushchev obsessed with upstaging the United States in every way. Whether Khrushchev understood what the Soviet scientists and engineers were doing didn't matter. However, Korolev was able to suffer from Soviet security. While his public rival in the U.S., Werner von Braun, got to be in Disney shows, have movies made about his life, with the unsavory Nazi connections obviously scrubbed, and was on the pages of magazines all across the country. All Korolev got was the ability to write in a newspaper under a pseudonym and a direct line to Khrushchev. So Korolev had to suffer under security, and in when it came to the end of his life, he basically was unknown up until the uh, announcement of his death and uh, opening of the vault of what he did during his life. Mm-hmm. Von Braun was picked up by the Americans during Operation Paperclip, a covert action to move more than 400 German scientists and experts to the United States to work on defense technology. Whether this German was a war criminal didn't really matter at the time. Von Braun moved to Huntsville, Alabama, where he became a practicing Christian and an open anti-communist. Working with the United States had its advantages. Von Braun was able to develop ICBMs for the United States, and that development wasn't as difficult as it would be for the Soviets, 
with U.S. nuclear technology progressing rapidly, the warheads of the United States were smaller and lighter. The developers of an ICBM didn't have to build big, roaring monsters to get the nuclear weapon where it's going. The Soviets, with a more outdated design for nuclear weapons, uh, lacked the delivery capabilities needed a, they needed a multi-stage ICBM to get the same weapon to its target. But now, we'll pick back up with Korolev's rocket development career post-World War II. So Korolev proposed the design for the R-2 in 1947. It was an upgraded V-2. The R-2 showed the Soviet rocket teams had now advanced beyond merely copying the German wartime designs they had stolen or taken. I guess if you're a Nazi, you don't get things stolen. With weight reductions and efficiency improvements, enough to increase the range of the R-2 to twice that of the V-2, or over 600 kilometers, though it still couldn't carry heavy nuclear weapons. The first R-2 would be flown in 1949, and this successful improvement over the V-2 showed that the Soviets were able to surpass, not merely copy, their German rockets. Korolev was soon taken up with a new project, though. He entitled it the R-3, and its goal would be to push the boundaries of known rocket technology. The R-3 was aimed to reach a range of 3,000 kilometers, and it would theoretically be the first step in closing the quote-unquote bomber gap as the U.S. began fielding jet interceptors to protect their massive B-29 fleet. The R-3 would be a single-stage rocket with a 29,000-pound thrust engine. Finally, the Soviets had something beyond the Tu-4 with which to threaten Western Europe. Korolev was promoted in 1950 to the head position of the NII-88 Engineering Division. The successes of the R-2 and R-3 had shown his worth and genius to the Soviet uh, planners and, you know, got a promotion from it. And Korolev was to be given almost free reign in designing nuclear-capable rockets, these to be the R-5 and R-11. The R-11 was meant to replace the R-2. Having only just flown and unable to loft nuclear weapons onto enemy cities, the purpose of continuing to produce R-2s was not clear. NATO would soon come up with a name for the R-11 after it entered service as a medium-range ballistic missile. They called it the Scud, and it would be a favorite of Saddam Hussein's armies later on in the 1991 Gulf War. That's a bit out of the way. The R-5 program really started advancing in 1952 as the R-3 program stalled for similar issues that faced the R-2. Only boasting a range of 12,000 kilometers compared to the 3,000 kilometers of the R-3, the key difference between the two rockets was the payload capacity of the R-5, as it could deliver a nuclear weapon all the way to West Germany. Finally, the Soviets would have an answer to the B-29 fleets of the West. And if it hasn't been obvious so far, the main dilemma the Soviet rocket engineers were having was in what area to focus on. I mean, should the main effort be an R-2 and R-11 low-range missiles? The Americans had the ramjet-powered short-range Navajo missile, which would only operate within the atmosphere. These were effectively cruise missiles by this point. They wouldn't leave the atmosphere, and they would just fly onto the target. But was there a tactical reason for the Americans to prioritize this development over longer-range intercontinental rockets? Did they know something the Soviets didn't? Would Soviet designers be wasting precious resources in pursuit of projects like the R-5 and R-3 that would follow the ballistic arc up out of the atmosphere? Kind of like you would think from like a regular rocket we have nowadays. Well, whatever concerns the Soviet planners may have had were settled by the Korean War. The B-29s of the United States Air Force proved in 1950 and 1952 during the Korean War that they could operate in airspace that enemy jets were in, at least as long as they also had jet escorts. 
Up until this point, the Soviets had been slightly reassured by the thought that even though they could not strike at the U.S. with comparable long-range capable bombers, at least the long-range nuclear bombers that the U.S. had were only turboprop piston-powered planes. The Soviets figured that their jet interceptors could make quick work of these massive, slow-moving bombers in any shooting war. But the Korean War proved this not to be, and things would only get worse from the Soviets from this point. In 1952, the Americans detonated the first hydrogen bomb, vastly more powerful than the weapons detonated over Hiroshima and Nagasaki during the Second World War. These new bombs also had the potential to be made far smaller. This meant that the rockets that carried them didn't need to be as powerful as they had before. In the weeks before he died, Stalin ordered the NII-88 research group to devote themselves fully to the development of an intercontinental ballistic missile, or ICBM. To further this goal, all development of the shorter-range R-2 and R-11 rockets was shunted over to the aircraft developers. The stage was set, and the goal was clear. Before the Americans could deploy these monstrously powerful hydrogen bombs en masse, the Soviet Union must have a way to also deliver nuclear weapons onto American soil. With this new impetus to focus on ICBMs, Korolev pushed to cancel the R-3 entirely and move directly onto a larger rocket. The R-3 was just in such a state of development hell by this point that it basically just existed on paper still. Korolev, definitely against his NII-88 boss's wishes and demands, stated in a design meeting openly that, quote, the R-3 design with a range of 3,000 kilometers will not only not answer our long-term needs. Our collective has come to the well-founded conclusion that there's the opportunity to go above and over the R-3 and begin work on intercontinental missile, end quote. For a man of his low status on the Soviet hierarchy to backtalk a superior in Stalin's USSR was a very dangerous thing to do. Korolev did convince some of the right people, though. They would now stop the stair-step process they had been following of incremental increase in rocket performance and design, and instead design a rocket to meet Stalin's demands directly. Soon, Korolev had the design blueprinted. It had a central core cluster of engines supported by four surrounding engine clusters, each attached to the side, and each providing over 170,000 pounds of thrust for a total of 900,000 pounds of thrust upon liftoff. As the fuel drained in flight and emptied, the four clusters would then fall off and away, leaving only the central core to continue onwards into space. By 1954, the design was developed enough to be given a name and be put into production. It was called the R-7. The U.S. had military drawdowns after the Second World War. No longer could a massive military be justified, what with the Nazis defeated and the world at peace. It did certainly help that the U.S. had the bomb and nobody else seemed even close to getting it. Why do you need to maintain a massive army when you could simply just nuke any enemies into dust? But 1949 changed this dichotomy with the Soviet atom bomb. Now they were equals. Now the U.S.'s B-29 fleets didn't seem quite so daunting a defensive force anymore, though their presence did mean the rocket push just wasn't there like it was in the USSR. The Soviets were in catch-up mode. The Soviet rocket program mirrored the U.S.'s early rocketry in many ways. Both sides were largely using German expertise and documentation. Both sides' early rockets were just V-2s by another name. But with the U.S. capturing Pinamunde, they had far more working V-2s and German rocket scientists captured than the Soviets had. The U.S. led a distributed rocket effort, much in the way that all the planes in the U.S. arsenal were made by different companies. The free enterprise of the United States meant that many new rocket companies were submitting bids to meet the specifications the Army or Air Force were asking for. 
The Huntsville Army Ordnance Facility, called the Redstone Arsenal, soon became the rocket hub of U.S. development effort. The Redstone Arsenal went fully online in 1949, and they had some designs from the Jet Propulsion Laboratory, or JPL, and Bell Labs to work with. JPL sent over the Corporal rocket design, which was a small liquid fuel rocket designed completely independently of the V-2, and they sent over a solid fuel rocket called Honest John. Bell Labs' designs were for a series of anti-aircraft missiles they called Nike. As the Army worked on improving and building these rockets, 1950 arrived, and with it came the Germans captured from Pinamunde. Held at Fort Bliss for a while after the war, the U.S. decided that their expertise outweighed their massive guilt. Von Braun was among these men who traveled to Huntsville, and soon after his arrival came his redeveloped V-2 design. Called Redstone, after the arsenal came from, this liquid-fueled rocket was an improvement in every way over the V-2. It was nuclear-capable and had a 200-mile range and a 750,000-pound thrust engine. This was the first real rocket to come out of the Redstone arsenal. Real in the sense that it was a market improvement over the V-2 and not just a proof-of-concept design. The Redstone was only capable of suborbital flight, however, which limited its potential uses. The Army would soon leave the liquid fuel rocket enterprise, focusing on solid fuels for their future rockets, whereas the Air Force preferred liquid fuels over solids, and they began to redesign and upgrade Convair's MX-774 rocket before dropping it entirely for a different one, which would be known as Atlas. Their plans were for the Atlas rocket to be their first inter intercontinental design, and the program was approved, but again, there was no sense of urgency among these different American design teams. The Strategic Air Command and its nuclear fleets of B-29 and soon B-52 bombers consumed most of the military funding anyhow, but slow, steady progress was being made. Atlas wasn't practical for military deployment. It was massive, over 150 feet tall, and it was heavy, over 650,000 pounds fully fueled. It was meant as a testbed to develop concepts and work out problems before the U.S. was to construct their first real military-ready ICBM, whatever that would be. By 1954, the Navajo, Redstone, and Atlas rockets were the only rockets being developed for the U.S. Air Force arsenal. The Redstone was the only one of these three to exist more than on paper by this point. The R-7 program, on the other hand, was already fully underway. The Soviet lead was established, and the sluggishness of U.S. agencies caused by their complacency and split organizational focus would not help things go faster. This is foreshadowing, folks. The 1953 launch of the R-5 would help things as Americans began to realize just how behind they actually were. But despite all efforts of the U.S. to speed their progress, they were hampered by the institutional program problem of their split rocket development programs. Too many resources were split between too many programs. Clearly, at this point, the advantage lay with the Soviet Union and their single-minded focus on just making an ICBM. By September of 1956, the U.S. had a rocket on a pad, which was a Jupiter design, waiting to launch. This rocket, the Jupiter, was just a redstone equipped with a powerful solid fuel second stage. Jupiter just sounds different enough from the redstone for it to work. Now, this Jupiter was only able to get 18 pounds of payload to orbit, but it would be enough to do the job. This launch would be following many prior failures and humiliations in the preceding years. The U.S. had attempted to launch satellites many times before this in the past couple of years, 
with this Jupiter rocket, but they had all met disaster. This time, the rocket would fly off successfully and would travel 3,355 miles and reach a height of 682 miles, but it didn't reach orbit. The second stage just didn't quite have the power. But the next launch was aimed to be the first orbit. But the Soviets would ensure that the next launch would fail to do that. Khrushchev was obsessed with upstaging the Americans, and the Soviet development of the R-7 ICBM platform, Khrushchev and the Soviets had bridged the technology gap between the Americans and themselves, and some would say surpassed the Americans as they had a multi-stage rocket that actually worked, unlike the Jupiter. But this rocket could be used for more than just ICBMs. It could carry a small metal ball with antennas sticking out of it into orbit to send signals down from space. This sounded like science fiction to most people, but the powerful R-7 and its premier scientists of the Soviet Union, like Korolev, worked tirelessly on new rocket improvements that seemed within the realm of possibilities. Sputnik 1 was launched in October 4, 1957, getting a win for the Soviets in the first event of the space race. And... It was the first man-made satellite into orbit. This was a great achievement for the Soviet, and the race was on. The U.S. Air Force, in a panic with the launch of Sputnik 1, then followed shortly by Sputnik 2, which brought us the first mammal into space, Laika the Space Dog, started the Man in Space Soonest program. The Air Force was trying to create a Man in Space Soonest program, also known by the acronym MISS. MISS was going to take the developing X-15 program and turn it into the military's premier science program. At the time, most Americans, including strategists within the military, believed the Soviets were doing space launches to get an advantage in the upcoming nuclear war when cold went hot. And this is even echoed by Senate Majority Leader, future Space Task Force Leader as Vice President, and future President Lyndon B. Johnson. The current president, however had a different idea. Eisenhower made America's mission to space a civilian endeavor and created NASA. NASA was going to send a man to space with its new Mercury program, a man-in-a-can endeavor to take a newly dubbed astronaut who was at least less than 40 years old, 5'11 or shorter, in excellent physical condition, with a bachelor's degree, a graduate of test pilot school, 1,500-plus hours of flying, and a qualified jet pilot into space. Taking men from the top of the ziggurat over at Edwards Air Force Base or Naval Test Pilots to see if they truly had the right stuff to leave Earth. That was their main target audience to pull out these new pilots to be astronauts. The issue was convincing these qualified pilots to join. In the minds of many skilled test pilots, jumping over to a civilian program when you're already at the top of the ziggurat in the military, was a risky gamble. What is? What if Project Mercury is a dud? Well, you are now the butt of the joke, and another jock came along and took your spot in this jock ziggurat hierarchy. Now you are some old washout that went chasing some harebrained civil, civilian space endeavor. The ones who did sign up, however, were treated like lab rats in the selection process with doctors and scientists poking and prodding plus enemas galore. At the same time, scientists were training monkeys to do tests for the program, and some of the pilots 
felt like they were being treated the same as these monkeys. But the humiliation was soon over, as seven men were finally selected to be the Mercury Seven. Scott Carpenter, Gordon Cooper, John Glenn, Gus Grissom, Wally Shira, Alan Shepard, and Deke Slayton. The Mercury Seven. Publicly debuted in 1959, they became almost state-mandated celebrities. But the hits on the United States kept coming. Luna 1 made it to the moon in 1959, launching little hexagons across the surface of the moon, emblazed with the hammer and sickle and CCP. Khrushchev was even able to take one of these hexagons and prevent it to present it to President Eisenhower when he arrived for his U.S. tour. The Soviets were also developing a manned mission to space as well. Dubbed the Vanguard 6, a play on the Mercury 7, as the Mercury 7 was plastered all over magazines and the Soviets were keeping their uh, scientific endeavors in space, a state secret. So, as a little jab, they called it the Vanguard 6. These were also test pilots, but they were younger than the American selection, all being around their 20s and shorter due to the restricted size of the experimental Vostok capsule. Gagarin, Kashov, Nikolaev, Popovich, Zitov, and Varmov, a group of these three frontrunners were the obvious choices for the man to make history popped off in both groups. Both groups had a leading, leading man, per se. Glenn, Johnson, Alan Shepard, and Gus Grissom for the Americans. Zitov, Gagarin, and Popovich for the Soviets. John Glenn was a Marine Corps war hero, flying in World War II, the Chinese Civil War, don't ask any questions about that one, and most notably the Korean War. The Korean War saw the first jet fighters going up against each other, and the MiG-15 outclassed anything the Americans had at the time for jet fighters. Glenn was still able to shoot down three MiGs in his time and help his, protect his commander who got shot down. Glenn was a hardline Presbyterian and a son of a World War I veteran who owned and operated his own small plumbing business. John was a great American archetype. Although shorter in stature, John brought charisma and bombastic American exceptionalism wherever he went. And at Mercury 7 press events, which they were doing all across the country, for the press or the public, John was the main man the other six pushed to the front. He loved the attention, and the American people loved John. This is opposite to Gus Grissom, who really didn't have a way with words when it came to dealing with media or the general public. Although Gus and John were both from Ohio, Gus grew up a child of a railroad worker and was still in high school for most of World War II. Gus was still an absolute master in a plane, however, just like Alan Shepard, although Alan was a Navy man from New Hampshire. The three Soviet frontrunners were German Satov, Pavel Popovich, and Yuri Gagarin. Popovich was a Ukrainian who loved to sing Ukrainian folk songs. His birth year is slightly unknown after the Nazis burned his town's documents. Popovich was a charismatic man who loved to work out, and he would eventually become the first Ukrainian in space. That sounds like we're jumping a bit ahead, but sadly the Soviets had an ideological idea to carry forward. Talking about this time in history, most people will use Russians and Soviets interchangeably, and the Soviets and Popovich had a different, had a similar fault. Popovich being Ukrainian was his downfall in the running. 
Although he was a skilled pilot and expert in his field, the first Soviet cosmonaut had, had to be an ethnic Russian, eliminating Popovich from being the first man for the Soviets in space. German Zitov grew up in rural, Soviet, rural Siberia, however, and was a son of a schoolteacher. A reserved man, his intelligence was extremely impressive, but when it came to conversations or group team-building activities, Zitov would rather be alone. He was a big fan of being more isolated and didn't really enjoy social situations. Yuri Gagarin, however, was a child of Russian peasants with a carpenter father. When the Nazis invaded, the German officers took over the Gagarin family home. But fortune shone on the Gagarins because instead of the normal Nazi officer decision to just kill the family, the officers let them live in a mud hovel at the corner of the yard of their old house. The Nazis, at a point during the occupation, attempted to hang Yuri's brother by the neck until he was dead on the old family tree. Yuri attempted to save his brother and his mother stepped in as soon as she saw the situation, barely saving his brother's life. This affected Yuri and his family for the rest of their lives. Yuri Gagarin was also reportedly involved in partisan activities against the Nazis. Although a child, he worked in to aid the, in the defeat of the Nazis through partisan activities. And after the war, Gagarin sought out party membership in the Communist Party, eventually learning how to smelt steel in a factory before joining the Air Force. Gagarin was one of the most charismatic people in the Soviet Union as well. His smile was magnetic, and he could make friends with instantly with almost anyone. The main core for of three for both sides had an obvious frontrunner. John F. Kennedy would win the 1960 presidential election, and on his inauguration day in January, NASA made its decision on who was going to be the first man in space. And they chose Alan Shepard to this May of Glenn. Glenn even attempted to get the decision overturned, but to no avail. Shepard would be the first man in space for the Americans, but the tests of the Mercury program were hitting excessive. With launching of monkeys and test launches galore, Werner von Braun and the other scientists with the Mercury Redstone project wanted to make sure that it was safe for human use. And one test actually resulted in Shepard being bumped. This is where, you know, you know the famous ham, the chimpanzees being launched into space. This is what was going on. But there were tests and tests and tests and retests. With the launching of the monkeys and tests galore, in March after Kennedy's inauguration, NASA had received only 80% of the budget its director, James Webb, had requested, and it had no funding for the Apollo program. Mercury was the end of the line in the mind of JFK, especially since Von Braun was holding off sending a man into space and demanding even more tests for the Redstone project for Mercury. Kennedy had issues in Southeast Asia developing and a plan for CIA operations in Cuba. No more time for monkeys and test dummies. No more time to even try to beat the Soviets, who were flying dummies in space, broadcasting Russian folk music in the skies for all radios with the range to hear. This was all to the despair of Alan Shepard, who was hungry to be the first man in space. 
The Soviets were hitting test after test, just like the Americans. To be, and on the outside, they looked like a success. But the veil of secrets extended throughout the Soviet program. Ivan Ivanovich was the name of the Soviets gave to their test dummy. All the U.S. could hear was Russian folk music he played as he flew overhead with a tape recorder taped to his body. But the Soviets were killing dogs inside the Vostok in the pod with Ivan. And if Soviet citizens found Ivan after he landed, they would beat him, thinking he was another Gary Powers or an American spy and not just a dummy. They also had a Soviet launch site that wasn't just for space rockets, but also for testing new ICBMs. One of these new ICBMs was the R-16, the newest development in ICBM technology for the Soviet Union. But on the 24th of October in 1960, a test went wrong. The R-16 exploded, killing anything anywhere from 50 to 300 people. The uh, number is vague, and this is a common thing for uh, Soviet history, where a lot of these uh, national tragedies uh, were definitely covered up on death amounts. You only have to look to Chernobyl to see an example of that. This included a hero of the Soviet Union, Mitrofan Ivanovich Nedelin whose only remains was a golden star of the hero Soviet Union he won as an artillery officer during World War II. He was the main supervisor of this project and development, and he was pushing it forward to eventually hit the launch at the anniversary of the Bolshevik Revolution. This disaster would eventually bear Nedelin's name. This was a shock to the Soviet rocket community, including Korolev, this didn't stop the push forward, because soon Gagarin would learn that he would be the first man in space. On the 12th of April, 1961, only six months after the Netherland disaster, Yuri Gagarin would orbit Earth to the extreme wonder of the entire world and the extreme panic of his family, who didn't know he was going into space. It is assumed that the thoughts might be in their mind, here goes Yuri getting himself killed, and as the main thought of his mother, as horrified by the news, she at least believed it and made her way to Moscow directly in order to at least catch her son after he did this extreme stunt. His father, however, did not believe the news as they announced that one major Gagarin had just become the first man in space and his son was only a lieutenant. Soon some workers were able to convince Father Gagarin that it was actually his son, and he went riding to Moscow first on a horse, then on a tractor, then in an official state car, quite far off from his son traveling the Earth in a spaceship. Gagarin is also photographed having CCCP painted on his helmet, but that was a last-minute decision by the Soviets because with the villagers frequently beating up Ivan whenever he landed, they wanted to make sure people knew that when he landed, he was actually a Soviet citizen and not a spy. So when you see CCCP, that was just so Gagarin didn't get killed by Soviet citizens. But Alan Shepard's wife, Louise, joked with Alan when she first heard the news about the Shepard selection. Coming home, Alan asked her, guess who the first man in space is going to be? And she guessed a Russian. Now it was all ruined for Shepard, as Von Braun bumping 
Shepard from a rocket launch earlier that year in 1960 to test the Mercury Redstone again, Allen was not going to be an international hero. He was able to eventually launch with the Mercury Redstone on May 5th, 1961, when he rode the Mercury Redstone rocket in the Freedom 7 capsule to a suborbital flight, making him the second man in space and the first American. This was a 15-minute flight, and with discussion of the cut of NASA funding, the Americans are losing the great battle in the sky. Only 15 minutes in space compared to the hours Gagarin spent orbiting the Earth. But still, the Americans were lagging behind in the newly inaugurated space race. Both had been to space. While Shepard only spent 15 minutes, Gagarin spent hours. Hours! Much progress was still needed for the U.S. to even match the Soviet accomplishment, let alone surpass it. We would have to save that for the next episode. This has been Episode 3, Do They Have the Right Stuff, of the Space Shuttle series by the Cleocast. I've been Matt. And I've been RC. And you can go ahead and get this wherever you get your podcasts. If you uh, like it, leave us a review or uh, share it. And if you have any questions, questions or comments or concerns you can email us at uh cleo history podcast at gmail.com you can go ahead and follow us on twitter at cleo history and uh, we're available wherever you get podcasts bye